Our passage today is Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But though Isaac shall your offspring be named, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. When we approach God's word, we believe, we trust that everywhere the scripture speaks, God speaks. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable, all parts of it, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we can come with some assumptions when we come to the Scripture, that when we come to the Scripture, we need to be taught, we need to be reproved, that we have weaknesses or sin in us, we need to be corrected, we're not going the right way, we need to be made straight in some ways, we need to be trained in righteousness. And so we turn to God's Word with great confidence that that's exactly what God's Word intends to do. And we have needs in that, and He intends to meet those needs with His Word. I don't know if you've ever seen, or maybe you've laid eyes on, some of you've laid eyes on this, the, the tallest building in the world. It's the Burj Khalifa. It's in uh, the UAE, in Dubai. Stands 2,720-some feet high. A massive structure. Tallest building in the world. I mean... And you look at this and you'd feel like you were in the heavens if you went to the top of this thing. I mean, a mile in the, in the sky. I mean, it's unbelievable just looking at pictures. And what you need to know about a building like that is that it doesn't just come up out of nowhere and isn't supported by nothing. That if you get a building that high and it's going that far up into the sky, what you're going to need for that thing is a really sturdy foundation so it doesn't just topple over. And man, does this thing have a sturdy foundation. They... they constructed this thing, and as they constructed it, they constructed a, a Y-shaped concrete mat. And this concrete is, is high-density, density, low-permeability concrete, which I know a lot about. So I know that that's the appropriate concrete for this particular structure. And it was poured at night to reduce cracks and uneven formations. And this concrete mat was about 12 feet thick. That's the bottom of it. And connected to this mat, coming down from this mat into the, the ground is 192 concrete, they're calling them piles, they look kind of like pillars, 192 of these things go straight down into the ground, and they're about five feet in diameter, each of them. So you can imagine, five foot diameter, 192 of them all going right into the ground, and they extend 164 feet down into the ground. Like, that's the kind of structure that's underneath the structure that holds up the structure. It's amazing to think about just the ingenuity and engineering that went in, not just to the, 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 the height, but the depth of the structure as well. And it's, a, it's 
well-established, right? It, it, the higher you go, the, the, the more careful you're going to have to be about how deep you go. Those, those are going to correlate. And, and if they're in bad proportions or in wrong proportions or wrongly done, then there's going to be all sorts of problems. And if it's going to go high, it's going to have to go deep. Man, in Romans 8, when we went to Romans 8, didn't we soar high? Didn't we go all the way to the heavens? God, I mean, Paul took us to eternity in Romans 8. It was unbelievable. There's, if God is forced, nothing can be against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I mean, we were in the heavens there, right? Glory declared to us. And then we hit Romans chapter 9. And what we got in Romans chapter 9 is support that goes down deep for Romans chapter 8. Deeper than we even know. I, he's asking the question in a sense. He's setting up this idea that verse 6, perhaps maybe God's word has failed. If we soared to the heavens and that word of God wasn't true, then that word means nothing to us and it has no hope and we should not be soaring at all because it's all just a fool's game. But he's saying God's word hasn't failed, that God's promise stands firm that his calling is effective and his purpose of election stands. So what Paul is doing is he is taking us, he, he took us to the heights, he's going to show us what can support this kind of thing. If that thing went all the way to the heavens, let's go all the way down. That thing went to eternity, let's go to eternity this way and make sure it can be supported. So when Paul writes Romans 9, when he writes this section of scripture, Paul is not playing a theological game. He, he's not trying to like, let's stir up some discussion in the study today and I'll ask a really hard question for you, and let's figure it out. Paul is writing to real people to give them sturdy assurance that what he told them of the heights of in Romans chapter 8 is actually really well-founded, dug really down deep. He wants them to know that there are certain promises from God and that his word has not failed. Well, how does he do it? Oh, he's going to talk about how God's promise and purpose of election stand, that his calling is effective. Start God's promise, calling, it's effective, he proclaimed skyscraper promises in Christ in Romans 8, and they're only good if God's word hasn't failed. His original readers had some knowledge, at least some interaction, especially within their own church. Like they would have had some, those who would have been Jewish, who had been converted, they were there. They would have had some knowledge of Old Testament promises then, and they would have had some understanding and sensitivity to the current state of Israel. They're, they're looking around, and the spiritual state of Israel, as they look around, by and large, is not great. They are, by and large, cut off from Christ. Some of the great opponents to the spread of Christianity and the gospel are these who were the chosen people of God, the Israelites. And so they could question, has God's word failed? And so again, this is not a theological game for Paul. He doesn't come to it coolly and, and say, so, you know, like, hey, let's, let's figure this out. No, he comes talking to real people. He's not trying to stut, strut his theological acumen. He's not shooting the theological breeze. He's helping real people he wants to, them to answer real questions, real concerns, so they have sturdy assurance because by and large, he looks around Israel and he knows they're cut off. They're cut off from Christ in their unbelief. They've rejected the Messiah that God gave to them. And this brings Paul anguish. He's not joking about this thing. He's in anguish, great sorrow. I'm just like, as I read, you know, verses one through five, I'm thinking like, I might be in anguish some. He says it's like constant for him. It's all the time. It's not... A game for him. And so how does he respond to his anguish? How, how is he even addressing his own anguish? That's what he gets at here. Now, Paul has dispelled that, that clearly that these Jews at the time, like if some of them were cut off and some of them aren't, that, that does that mean that God's word has failed? Now, he's going to say clearly no. 
Now, at the time, most, most Jews would have thought, I belong to God, I'm saved, I'm part of God's people just by being a descendant of Abraham. Paul has already said, that's not true. We did that already in Romans. And he says the Roman believers that he's talking to, they know that now so clearly. I'm not justified by circumcision or by belonging to Abraham, being descended by Abraham, but by faith. But So that was one option, like maybe I still belong. And Paul says, no, you have to have faith in Christ. Well, here's another option to if God's word has failed, thinking about the current spiritual state of Israel. Well, what if his word has actually failed then? If, if you're not a physical descendant of Abraham, if you're not belonging to God by being a physical descendant of Abraham, then what are we to make of all these Old Testament promises in the current state? Either they are or they aren't, but if they aren't, it seems like maybe God's word has failed. So maybe you could do this, Paul, like, hey, just admit it. The Old Testament, it just doesn't seem to match up and line up with our current experience. We don't know what to make of all those promises. So let's just... Paul, you could start over. Start from scratch. Figure this out and, and try to explain God a different way. And his words are different. Just start a new foundation. Paul doesn't do that. He digs down deep into the foundation. Like, let's look at what's there. Verse 6. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He, he refuses to think that that's an option. And clearly he's convinced that it's not. He says, let's, let's get the shovels out. Let's dig. Let's look deep. And here's what he says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's the principle. It's going to be going all the way through. To Israel, the ones who, verses 4 and 5, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That Israel. When he's saying to them, like, just because you belong to that, doesn't mean you belong to that. Not every single individual in Israel is Israel, is what he's saying. And those promises, those covenants, don't belong to every single individual in Israel identically. There's an Israel, and then there's another Israel. Uh, we could refer to it, and I think I will, as a true Israel. So there's an Israel, and then there are individuals within Israel that are the true Israel. And he's just saying not all belong to that true Israel. And here's how he explains it. Verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So that alone is not going to do it. Here's how he explains this. He gives an illustration. He says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham, he was the forefather of, of the Israelites. He is called in Genesis chapter 12. He's worshiping idols. God calls him out of that to follow him. And he makes him some promises. He promise, promises him in Genesis 12 and 15. He says, I'll give you offspring. Abraham, what he brings to the table is Nothing. Right? He, he brings his idolatry, he brings his wife who is barren, they are not able to have children. That's what he brings to this promise that God says, actually what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to give you a blessing to all the nations of the earth, and he brings nothing to this. He has no land to, that God is going to give him. He doesn't say like, here, how about you work with this? Nope, another land, I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to bring my offspring, bless them. Nope, you have no offspring, you're barren. He brings that to God, God says, I'll give you offspring. Right? That's what he brings to this, and this is what God promises. But in chapter 16 of Genesis, he has no children still. This is years after the first time he got called and it was made this promise. Years. And so he's looking around and Sarah's looking around and they're like, maybe we should do something about this. How about you take Hagar? We have no offspring. Let's, let's have offspring through Hagar. That will happen. And through the joining of Abraham and Hagar, we have the son Ishmael. But in chapter 17 of Genesis, God again says... I'm going to give you offspring. You know what Abraham says back to that? Like he's old at this point, right? And listen to what he says back to, to God 
when God promises again offspring. So Genesis chapter 17, verse 18 and 19, Abraham says to God, he already has Ishmael. He's walking around. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let him be the one. Makes sense. He came for me. You promised me offspring. Here it is. But God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He, he says, here's, here's Ishmael. Use him. No, that's not how God builds the promise, right? That's not how he builds the covenants. It's not how he builds true Israel. He doesn't build them based on them working it out. Like, hey, we're not having offspring. God promised us offspring, so let's figure it out. Let's do this with Hagar. God doesn't build the promise that way. He says, no, it's not through Hagar. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's through the promise that I'm giving to you. And that is through your wife, Sarah. She's the one who's going to have the offspring. That's how I'm going to build my people. That's how I'm going to build my promise. So in chapter 21, Isaac is born. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. And what was happening there is that God was doing something that they couldn't do. Literally, like in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 17, this is displayed in the story. Uh, He gives life to the dead. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's what he did with Abraham and Sarah. That's what he does in the birth of Isaac, the son. And notice that word there. I'm going to call those things into existence. That's a word that we're going to see in Romans 9 a lot here. Call. He uses both call there and here. And I think there's a link, right? This is God saying, this is how I'm going to build my people. This is how I'm going to build my promise. This is how I'm going to build through Israel. It's not through effort of man. It's not through their power. It's not through their wisdom. I'm going to build it through my calling, through my naming something, not through physical descent, through me, through my work. It's not going to be on human effort. It's not going to be on human power. It's not going to be on human wisdom, but on the power of God, the word of God, the call of God. That's how it's going to be built. And so from these two offspring, God says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Ishmael and Isaac, they're both offspring of Abraham, right? But only one gets the promise. Verse 8 explains this. Here's what this means. This means it's not the children of the flesh, both were children of the flesh, who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It was never, Paul looks back, just look at your forefather Abraham, it was never that the Israelites, the people of God, it was never merely children of the flesh who are children of God. It was always children of the promise, and that wasn't always everybody. That's what he's getting at. God built his people, not merely through physical descent, but primarily through what? His naming, his calling, his work, his power at work in them. That's how he built them. So the promise wasn't to Ishmael, it was to Isaac. Abraham's offspring, the true Israel, was built and named through Isaac. So Isaac is the one who was counted as offspring. There's another word that links us back to chapter 4, doesn't it? Counted? Through, through Isaac, I'm counting this as your offspring. They're counted as offspring. We saw counted in chapter 4. Abraham, he isn't righteous, right? But he believed in God, and God counted it to, right, to him as righteousness. He wasn't righteous, but faith counted. In other words, it took a gracious act on God's part for that counting to happen. That's what that counting is. God's gracious activity in the life of Abraham, that the one who is not righteous is counted as righteous. And that's what's happening here with Isaac. Not offspring, but God's going to count them as offspring 
It's his activity, his work. That's what's going on here. So here, physical descent isn't enough. God's gracious activity is needed. He is the one who must name an heir. He is the one who must, we could say it this way, he must call. And so again, what Paul is getting at is God's word has not failed. This is the way it has been. God never named and called all offspring of Abraham his children and his heirs. Not all of Israel was true Israel. There's Israel and there's true Israel. And God's promise is fulfilled and some and did not belong to all as Isaac and Ishmael show. So as you're looking around at the present state of Israel, he's saying, this explains it. God's word hasn't failed. This is how God has set it up from the beginning. The intention of the promise was never that every single individual of Israel would be recipients of that promise. It was those whom he called, like Isaac, those are the ones who are going to receive the promise, the covenants, the blessing. What's it based on? It's based on God's calling. And, and all those who God called, they received the promise. It, it was done for them. His calling, his promise then hasn't failed. In fact, I think he can kind of go the opposite way. Quite the opposite, he says. Actually, the ones that God intended this for, they received it. They for sure got this thing done. It was an effective calling. It always worked. So to further solidify, Paul goes again to Genesis. Look in verse 9. He says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Going to Genesis 18.10, that's when God's speaking. And in Genesis 18.10, again, Ishmael has already been born. He's already there walking around. And what happens? God makes a promise. Sarah's going to have a son. How? How is this going to happen? Well, God says, I'm going to return. How's it going to happen? God's going to work. It's his activity. Abraham and Sarah are not going to be able to conjure this up on their own. They've tried that for years. Sarah's barren. They tried. Let's, let's do it through Hagar. Nope, not the one. What's going to have to happen? God's going to have to return. His activity is going to have to happen. And Sarah, she listens to this and laughs. She laughs. And it's probably one of my favorite questions in all the scripture. Right after that, God says, why is she laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a good question. Can he make promises that he can't keep? Can he write a check with his promises that he's incapable of keeping? No. What happened? He returned, and Sarah had a son. And the promise, based on God's activity, naming and calling was fulfilled through Isaac. That's what happened. And so when we're looking at God's calling and God's promise, Paul isn't establishing just that it hasn't failed. He is doing that. It hasn't failed. He is going the opposite way and actually saying positively it's been very effective. It's worked exactly as God intended it. His promise, his calling is effective. So he's pushing us back to this conclusion that we saw in chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, isn't he? That those whom he predestined, he called. And then keep the connections going. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he's glorified. So that people who trust in God's work could say, if God is for us, verse 31, then who could be against us? Abraham? And Sarah and Isaac, they're all the children of God. Why are they the children of God? Because of God's calling and promise. It's effective for them. Not all Israel was true Israel. That was from Abraham on. Not all Israel was true Israel, but to true Israel, the promise was given and the promise was effective. It did its work. It was all because of God's activity and his work in and through them. That's what's being established. 
And not only is God's promise effective, but he goes on a little bit further to say that his purpose in this stands. There's a possible weak link in the argument here of, of Paul describing Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. So the Jews, who, who would have been around the time, they thought, hey, physical descent from Abraham means I belong to God, I'm part of God's people because I'm from Abraham. They might object to this argument so far and say, well, of course, Isaac and Ishmael. That makes sense. Of course, Ishmael wasn't included. His mother was Egyptian. We could even look at Ishmael himself. Like the, the scripture says that he was a wild donkey of a man. That wasn't Isaac. We're from Isaac. And so what do we say in light of this? What Paul does is he just ratchets down the argument further. He further pushes down into them. No, God's purpose, it still stands. His word hasn't failed. And so I, th I think that there's like one sentence in the original here for these remaining verses. But just listen to the totality of verses 10 through 13. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's what he does here in these verses, is he, he knocks the legs out of a few different arguments that would have remained. A few different arguments from verse 6 that would have said, hey, does God's word stand? He says, it does. Or verse 6, again, hey, he's saying, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and here's how he's going to support it. So what is he doing? Isaac, he's the clear descendant of Abraham. He's the clear descendant of the promise. His wife, Rebecca, she was the one who's like, okay, let's, let's narrow in on that story then, because uh, I, I, Ishmael and, and uh, Hagar, that's a different story. Like, let's ratchet it down further. Let's talk about Isaac. Let's talk about Rebecca. And, and what happens with Rebecca is that she is pregnant, and she gets pregnant with twins. And here's what God promises her. Verse 12, that the, that the older is going to serve the younger. That's what's going to happen here. So here's the promise. The older is going to serve the younger, which is a reversal of the dominant practice at the time, the dominant custom at the time that the older is first. They're, they're the preeminent one. God just flips that on its head. Because again, God doesn't build his people on some sort of human wisdom, human power, human effort. It's his power. It's his work. It's his activity. That's how he builds his people all the way through. Like Paul just narrows that down to where there's no way of escape. It's God's work. This is how he does it. So it's a reversal of kind of the dominant custom, but it's, it's God's work. But the twins, right? The twins, they are both descendants of Abraham. They are both descendants of Sarah. They're coming down from Sarah to Isaac, Isaac, and Rebekah. But both of these children in the same womb aren't children of the promise. Both of these people are not true Israel, in other words. Their situation takes the argument further than Isaac and Ishmael because unlike Isaac and Ishmael, the, these, these twins are in the womb simultaneously. So there's, there's some equality here by human standards. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, they have the exact same parents. There, there's no difference in parents. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael, the, the promise was made before their birth. Do you remember the other one? Ishmael's walking around and God says, no, actually it's through Sarah that your offspring is going to be named. Both of these are unborn. So if we're thinking by human standards, 
uh, these have the exact same descent. And God still presents a reversal in the promise that the first one born is actually going to serve the older. And what does he do to give explanation to that promise of verse 12, that the older is going to serve the younger? Here's what he says, verse 11. This is how he explains it. Though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older is going to serve the younger. So verse 11 is the conditions for the fulfillment of the promise of verse 12. Here's what's going to happen. The older is going to serve the younger, and here's how I'm going to do it. Here's how he did it. Verse 11. The promise was given prior to birth, and emphatically, two different times in one verse, emphatically not based on works. Hear it again in verse 11. Before they had done they had, done, they had yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And then later in verse 11, not because of works. So what he's saying here is that the promise that was given to them prior to birth was certainly not based on, dependent upon, any sort of work, good or bad. But it's further than that. It's not just prior to birth, prior to their works, that this promise is made. The promise is independent from their works. Notice that he says, in order that. They hadn't done anything, either good or bad, in order that. That's a purpose statement. For this reason. And what's the reason? That God's purpose of election might stand. And then he does it again at the end of verse 11. Not because of works, because of. Again, purpose statement, because of what? Because of him who calls. Now when he says in verse 11, not because of works, that stands out. Because when I say to you, if I said, hey, we are saved not because of works, but because of, what would you say? You'd probably say faith or grace. You know, you'd say something like that, right? Faith, that seems to be often what is expected. Because you, not because of works, but because of faith. And, and you have good reason for saying that. If you look in Galatians chapter 2, a very, very similar statement is made. Similar in structure, similar in words. Is yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. Not by works, but what? There it is. Faith. You, you could think of Ephesians. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not, not your own doing. Not by works. It's the work of God, right? What does he say here? Not works, but what? Verse 11. Because of him who calls. Works as the counterpart as a counterpart, normally has faith. We would expect that even in Romans, but not here. So not what he says. It's based on calling, God's work. The purpose of election and God's calling, then, are these things that are independent of those works. Right? That's what's on the opposite side here. God's calling and election are not based on those works that are out there that could go negative or works that are out there that could go positive. It's not that God foresaw that Esau was going to foolishly sell his birthright for some stew and said, not you. It's not that he looked for and said, I know that one time Jacob's going to wrestle with me and I'm going to bless him, so you. He's not doing that. The promise of verse 12 that the older is going to serve the younger is that purpose statement twice God's purpose of election might stand is that it would be based on him who calls. In other words, this, this work that God is speaking about, that the calling and election go through one and not the other, are based on sovereignty of God. A sovereign 
independent God, independent of their works, independent of their birth, independent of anything they could do, good or bad, God is setting his purpose down in these kids. And so what Paul is saying here is that this, Isaac and his children, Jacob and Esau, that that how God is working here, his purpose of election, his calling at work here is a typological work. What God was doing then is how we're to look around and understand how his word hasn't failed present Israel now. That's what Paul is saying. If you're looking around about Israel's present situation in his time, their current spiritual state, which seems to be primarily, by and large, cut off from Christ, you can look around, and here's how you explain it, is that actually what was happening there is typological. That's what's happening now. That that not all of Israel, descended from Abraham, even descended from, from Isaac, is true Israel. Based on what? God's calling God's purpose of election. God always is the one who is calling some. He's always been calling some out of Israel as true Israel. That's what he was doing back then. And Paul looks around and says, that explains the current spiritual state of Israel. The calling and election of some is not based on anything but God's call itself. It is completely independent, sovereign, and I want to add in there, good. That those who are part of the promise, who belong to God are saved by God, and they're not just those who are Abraham's descendants, they're those who are called, who God gives the promise to. That's what he says here. It's not because of their works, but because God called. It's not because of faith, but because God called. It doesn't negate the, the works with faith, he says, because of God's calling. He's grounding it in God's calling. Now, what this doesn't do is it doesn't negate faith. None of Romans has been voided now in Romans 9. It doesn't go back on anything. It doesn't negate faith to say, not on works, but on God's purpose of election, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. That doesn't negate faith. What that does with faith is it helps explain it and ground it even further. It takes us back again to chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Well, how does He justify? Well, we ought to know that from Romans so far, right? We ought to be really, really clear with how one is justified here so far, Romans describes you are justified not on your works, but by faith alone in Christ alone in order that God's purpose of election might stand. That's what he adds here in verse 9. All he's doing is he's digging a little bit deeper for us and saying actually where this stands on is this. This call that then one moves toward justification isn't because of someone's potential isn't because of some sort of possible outcomes that are out there in front of us, isn't based on some works of any kind, whether good or bad, but because of God and his calling and his purpose of election. That's what he says here. And so in other words, he's saying again, this is a free, independent God who's working sovereignly, freely for his purposes of election that they might stand. And here's what we need to think, that this is a glorious truth. Like me, I think that sometimes we, we get a little ashamed of things like this and we kind of try to keep them hidden. And I just want to say, like, that might work. <laughs> it can be, it would probably feel better to preach things that are easier than this. Right? And to keep these hidden. But we're not concerned about what's hard or not. We're concerned about what's true, what's needed. And God only gives us in his word what's true and what's needed. And so this isn't a truth that we want to hide. We want to herald it. Why? Why? Think of Jacob. Think of Jacob. Jacob was not awesome. Not an awesome guy. You read Genesis, it's unbelievable. He's slimy. He's a deceiver. He's a snake. 
Man, if I'm looking, especially early on in their lives, if I'm looking at Jacob and Esau, Esau's this man, he's out there, he's hunting, he's getting wild game, he's doing all these things. Jacob's just kind of hanging around the house. I, I mean, it seems like the picture of Genesis is that Jacob is not doing well. And that maybe Esau, if you're going to pick based on human standards, you go with Esau. It's not what God does. Jacob is, is not awesome. He's a liar. I mean, and not just a year or a time, years of his life. Why was he included? Why was he saved? Why did the promise go through him? Here's what Paul says, because God's purpose of election. Because of God's calling. God graciously, sovereignly, freely chose to save Jacob. That's why. Think about Paul. Same question for Paul, right? Why was Paul saved? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles. But by God's grace, I am what I am. Undeserved, freely given, bestowed on me. Or in 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. Foremost. What happened? The mercy of God happened. Paul was saved because God was gracious. Because of God's gracious and merciful call, God pulls Paul out of his lostness into being a child of the promise. He was merciful and he called. And because Paul was called, he was justified. And now we can say really clearly, because Paul was justified, he is now glorified. Not because of Paul's worthiness. He was completely unworthy. He says that himself. I was the persecutor of the church. I was doing everything I could to hinder the spread of the gospel. That was my job. He was worthless before God in terms of what he could offer. It wasn't because of his potential. Like, well, I see that Paul's well-situated. Maybe I should get him. It wasn't because of what he could do or his works that he had done. No, in Acts chapter 9, we get a really clear picture. That's when God called Paul, and it wasn't when Paul was seeking God. He wasn't kind of like, I'm softening, and, and maybe I need to look into Christianity. No, he's on the road to destroy the work of the gospel, to take those who have trusted in Christ and put them in jail, if not worse. He wasn't a seeker. So if it was dependent, his call to God, if it was dependent on Paul being a seeker, it never would have happened. But when Paul wasn't moving to God, God was moving toward Paul. God foreknew him. He predestined him. And so he called him. And so Paul, when he sees Jesus, he has faith in Christ. He starts living his life for the gospel. So what's going on here is that from the mess of sin and rebellion of Paul and Jacob and every other sinner that's ever been part of God's promise, what we have here is that God purposed to save them so that his purpose of election might stand. The purpose of election is that God would save some. It confounds human wisdom. It confounds human effort. It confounds human power. It's the work of God. It's salvation, and it's rooted in God's calling, God's election, God's will. And we keep looking for more things to explain it, but there's no higher things to explain it. What's your salvation grounded in? God's calling and election? Well, what else? Like, that is what else. (laughs) It's God's will, and that's it. There's nothing higher to base it on than that. And that, friends, is really good news for all of us. I mean all of us, believer and unbeliever, we'll get to that, but this is really good news for all of us. Because if any part of our salvation, any part, a millisecond of our salvation depends on anything in us, then we have only bad news. Like the scripture is really, really plain here. In Isaiah it says, you can bring all of your good deeds and they're still tainted like filthy rags before God. They're tainted with sin. 
They're, they're not good. I, I love John 15, 5. He says, hey, apart from me, Christ says, you can do nothing. Here's part of nothing, especially the good things, right? You can't do those apart from Christ. But if you're reading Romans, and you've been reading Romans with us, this is already known and plain because of the content we've already gone through so far. So again, if any part depends on us, that is really bad news. But if we believed Romans, we would believe that. Think about Romans 1 through 3. Paul is just, here's another deep dive. Hey, let's make sure that they know that they're sinners. So I'll take three chapters, and I'll dig down really deep, and I'll make sure that everyone is exposed before God as not deserving His grace and mercy, but as deserving His judgment and wrath. That's what he makes sure that he exposes in Romans 1 through 3. What about Romans 5? If we believe Romans 1 through 3, 4, 5, 5, we're dead in Adam. We're we're under the reign of sin and death, chapter 5. Chapter 6, we're slaves to sin apart from Christ. Chapter 7, we're fleshly. Nothing good dwells in us that is in our flesh. So again, if we take those two they're in, what we know from Romans so far is that then we need a God to effectually call us or we don't come. We need for his purpose of election to stand for any to be saved. We do not need help on our way to God. We need life in our death. We need to be called where we are cut off. Where we are far, we need to be brought near. Not because we're wandering in kind of the right direction, but because we're walking the opposite direction, we need a rescuer. It's probably because we don't think that we need salvation to be all of God that we have a problem with Romans 9. Like, we think that we can contribute something, and so Romans 9 strikes us as odd. We might admit that we need a Savior. Sure, I need some help along the way, but uh, fully? No part is mine? Yeah, that's the kind of Savior that Scripture clearly portrays to us. And that's the kind of, scripture, kind of Savior we absolutely need. So if God doesn't save independently, sovereignly, graciously, none could qualify. But God does. His purpose of election is that he would save sinners. Listen, if you're an unbeliever, we have to admit some of this is really challenging, difficult, and and again, we'd have to admit this is a bit of an insider conversation. Paul's writing to saints. He's trying to help them minister to one another and minister in their world. But if you're an unbeliever, you can know this. You can look to Christ and be saved. And he saves you all the way. And not because of you. That is really good news if you're an unbeliever. Because what you contribute to this is your sin. And what you deserve before God because of that sin is your judgment. But God says, oh, I save actually freely, independently, sovereignly, because that's what I do. It's based on me, not on you. That's good news for you, unbeliever. The Bible never will exclude anyone who would want to come to Christ to be saved. We look to Christ as the full Savior. He says, I'll have you. I'll be your Savior. Come and be saved. And if you're saved, here's what you can do. Is you, we're soar on the heights of Romans 8, right? Because God called you. You, you went really high to eternity in Romans 8. And we're going to eternity down. 
in Romans 9. Do you see it, believer? You see how important this, this God's purpose of election is for you? That you want to soar up here. Well, you need to know it goes all the way down here, and those go together, and they matter. Both of them matter. If you're a believer, God's purpose of election, his calling, that's vital stuff. It's not something we hide. We love it. We embrace it. How can we be sure that Romans 8 stands, that God's word doesn't fail? That's the question Paul is answering. And what does he point to? God's purpose of election, God's calling. That's what he points to. That may not be where you first would have gone. That's where Paul goes. Skyscraper promises need really deep uh, foundations, and that's exactly what he does. They went all the way to eternity future, and here he goes to eternity past. Got purpose of election here. Paul looks around. And what does he say in these verses? I'm in anguish over the lostness of Israel. What sustains him in his anguish? He doesn't comfort himself with, with nice things about God that he thinks will just pump him up for a while. He goes all the way down to God's purpose of election. That's what sustains him in this. Again, it's, he doesn't come to this cold, playing a theological game. He's in anguish. And what holds him? Purposes of God, the purpose of election. That's what holds him. He looks around at Israel and their current spiritual state and he says, That was me. But God's purpose of election stands. He purposed to save me, not because of what I could do, but because God is calling me. And so, what does he do with that? What, how does he respond to that? He's eager then to minister the gospel. He's taking the gospel as far and wide as he possibly can. He says, I want to get to you guys in Rome so I minister the gospel there. I even want to go on my way to Spain because I want to get the gospel there. What does he do towards his fellow Israelites? His practice was when he's going and spreading the gospel, I'm going to go into the synagogue first. He doesn't take this. God's purpose of election is to say, you know what, they're mostly cut off, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles, which they're pouring in. And that was what was happening. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to the synagogue first. Those are my brother and my kinsmen, and I'm in anguish over them. So I'm going to preach the gospel to them first. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy. Oh, that this might be said of all of us. Chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He doesn't say, like, I'm, I'm going out naming who these are. I'm going to the synagogue first. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going everywhere. And if there's elect anywhere, God's purpose of election might stand. And what how does it stand is I go out and I minister the gospel that they might come in. I'll endure anything for that, he says. Oh, that might be said of us. He even goes back to Jerusalem. Do you remember? They say, don't go back to Jerusalem. Only death awaits there. But what's in Jerusalem? This is where it started for him. This is his people. He goes back there knowing that what awaits him is only death. And he goes back there and he gets arrested. And do you remember in Acts 22 what he proclaims? He does it in Hebrew. This is what the purpose of God's election stirs up in Paul. Is that he looks at his people who want to kill him and arrest him. And he starts speaking to them in Hebrew. And he testifies to how the grace of Jesus met him on the Damascus road and changed his life. And so he went and he spoke everywhere. Jews and Greeks Believers, unbelievers, he ministered the gospel with the confidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he went, and he went humble. He didn't say, man, I figured it out, and you silly Jews just can't, can't get it. He doesn't do that. He pleads with them. He's in anguish over them. He's sorrowful over them. I mean, what a picture of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem does Paul carry out in his life in Acts. Sorrow over his people, that they might come, that they might know he speaks humbly before them because God called him, not because of what he had done. You can't be in on this purpose of election and think, I've done something well, and now I have a reason to boast. Quite the opposite. 
you couldn't come with pride. You could only humbly declare the good news of the gospel. He calls, he pleads. He doesn't let people off the hook. He doesn't say, you know what, because of God's purpose of election, we can't figure it out. You'll be all right. He says, repent and believe the gospel because you deserve judgment from God. And God provided a son that you might be saved if you believe in him. So, I don't know what you've heard about God's purpose of election, but here's what God's purpose of election doesn't do. If we're living it out the way Paul does. Pretty good model. Follow him as he follows Christ. It doesn't thwart evangelism. It launches evangelism. That's exactly what it does for Paul. You can't separate those. It doesn't make him one who's incompassionate. You're just a cold person who thinks that God has chosen these because of his purpose of election, and you're really warm to the ones you think are coming to Christ, and you're really cold towards the other night, doesn't do it. He has compassion on the lost. That's what it does. It makes him humble in his declaration of the gospel. So far from doing any of those things, it actually drives him. It sustains him. It keeps him when he's in anguish over the lostness of Israel. What keeps him? God's purpose of election. It's a good doctrine. And if there's issues with it, with parts of Romans 9, we need to know that's not just an issue with Romans 9. What does he do in Romans 9? He takes us all the way back to Genesis. So if there's issues with Romans 9, there's issues more just in Romans 9 with issues of the biblical storyline, and what is he rooted in, right? It's God. You want to pin something on somebody here, you're going to pin it on God. That's what Paul's saying here. So if there's an issue here, that's, I understand, like it's hard stuff. We can have questions. Look in verse 14, he's going to ask a question from this. You know, we're going to have a few more questions along the way. It's okay, but just know where the problem is. You, you actually have a problem. If you have a problem with Romans 9, you have a problem with the Lord. That's what Paul does with it. So if there's issues here, I think there's mercy for that. But make sure to wrestle with what's actually there and not with something that has been informed by outside sources. And make sure you're actually wrestling with the Lord. Paul pins it on God. Like he, it's God's calling an election. You got a problem with that? Wrestle with God. That's what we need to do. There's mercy for all those things. We should do that together as well. So I encourage that. Jump in a home group. Get in community and, and wrestle. That's fine. I get it. But know where the problem is. And that the problem with God is even more evident in verse 13. With perhaps the most provocative statement that he gives in this chapter so far. Verse 13. That the problem with God is so clearly affirmed here. Because what Paul does is he's quoting Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. And, and the words are put on the lips of the Lord. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. <laughs> put on the lips of God. So again, if there's an issue here, you, you're going to have to take that up with the Lord. Now, in Malachi, that hate is tied to positive judgment. Like, it's a hard text. So when we come here and we say that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's probably not just that he loves Esau less. I think that's a temptation to describe it that way. I'm not sure that would hold. But remember that what Paul is saying, verse 6, God's promise, his word, it stands, and not all who are of Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel is true Israel, and that's based on God's purpose and election, God's calling. God called Jacob. He did not call Esau. He bestowed the covenant and the promises on Jacob. He did not bestow the covenant and promises on Esau. In other words, he's saying, from the beginning, before they were even born, God never intended to give those covenants, those promises, those offspring to Esau in the same sense that he did to Jacob. So in that sense, I think it is true that Esau is hated. That is clear. What 
still remains out there is probably more than that, but seems to be a mystery. In that sense, though, Esau is hated. Now, what do we do with this? God is still love, right? Yes, he's still love. He still loved Esau. If we look at Esau's life in the book of Genesis, you, you see all sorts of what we would kind of call common grace love that's displayed toward him. Esau, in terms of worldly standards, actually is quite prosperous. He has kind of his own kingdom. He becomes like, this is the kingdom of Edom. They come from Esau. He's got all kinds of material goods. So again, this is Esau that God says he hated. So in, in many ways, Esau is still loved, but he wasn't loved in every respect. He wasn't loved in the same respect as Jacob. That is what Paul is saying here with this verse. All kinds of mystery there. All I can say is that's what it says. The point that Paul is making is that it was God's free, sovereign purpose of election and calling that was at work in that. And that God didn't make a mistake when he said that and wrote that. And that he's not trying to hide it from us. So what are we to make of this? Even if we could, and we can't, explain all of this in full about what all is going on here and what this means and what it doesn't mean, what are we to say about this God who could say, I hated someone? Well, let's think about verse 13 and how we read it. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What jumps out to you in that verse? What's the most surprising thing? Well, you've been taught over and over again, if you've been in the church long about this God who is love, and so my guess is that you're like me, that what jumps off of that sentence is this word hated. Esau I hated. Now, if you're reading the scripture, if you're reading through the biblical storyline, or if you're just reading through Romans, if you've been visiting with us and going through Romans with us, Jacob I loved is way more radical and surprising than Esau I hated. Way more. It's not even close. Not even close. Here's what Romans has told us so clearly. All are sinful, deserving of the wrath of God, deserving of the judgment of God. Here's what Jacob does when he lives. He proves himself so unworthy of the grace of God, the promises of God, the covenant of God. He finds himself very worthy of the judgment of God, the wrath of God over and over in his life. He is worthy of wrath so many times. So what is surprising is that Jacob is loved, that he is this one who is a recipient of the promises, that he was chosen by God for anything. That's surprising. We might think, well, that's not fair that Esau is hated. And we have to be really careful there. We're treading on unsteady ground. Because what's fair, what we're calling for is what's just. What's just, according to the scripture, is that Jacob and Esau both be hated. We have to be careful. But why isn't God fair? Well, we don't want fairness from God. Fairness from God for us means that we spend eternity in hell. That's fairness and justice from God. So we might say it's not fair, but we need to be careful with that. I, I like what one author said this, and I think that this is helpful, that the modern misjudgment of God flows easily from contemporary theological theologians' occupation with love as the core of God's being. While righteousness is subordinated and denied equal ultimacy with love in the nature of his deity... All right, here's, here's a translation of that. We think that God's love is primary and that other characteristics about God are secondary and not as necessary, honestly. And actually, if we're going to talk about God, we're going to put those second and make sure this is first. So in other words, one is going to happen at the exclusion of the other, about, at the expense of the other. And the scripture just does not allow that. God is love. This doesn't roll that back at all. God is also holy. 
He's righteous. He's all of those things at the same time. It's essential that God be righteous. It's essential that God be holy. It's essential that God be love. And so in this, who God is, somehow he hates. The condemnation of the clearly sinful, such as Esau, the judgment of the wicked, those things are deserved. Those are acts of justice. Those are actually, can I say it? Good. Because God cannot love goodness without hating evil. Cannot. We need a God who hates. So hate isn't the problem. It's actually good. And what Paul goes to great lengths in Romans to show is that how a God like that can justify sinners. That's the question. Jacob I loved is the question. How can I justify sinners? That's the problem. How can a God who is just, who is holy, who is righteous, who actually hates evil in a righteous, holy kind of way, a holy kind of hate, how can that kind of God justify a sinner? How can he satisfy his wrath towards sinners and at the same time justify those sinners? That's a good question. Oh, Paul has been so burdened to answer that, hasn't he? And he has given us good news. And he says, let me tell you about the righteousness of God. It's been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. We've seen that before, Jacob and Esau. No distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified how? By grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Like, if you believe that, you are okay with Romans 9. It's a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he could satisfy this question, how can you be just and justify sinners? And that's what he does, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we might have a hard, hard time when we come to this content. I mean, I was a little wired up today. And, and it might bring a lot of shots at us. I wore my shirt today underneath here. You can't, I won't rip this off because why? But, you know, the bull between the altar and the plow, ready for either, all right? So if we need to be, if we need to suffer today because of this, we can suffer. Ready for whatever. We might have a hard time with this content. We, we might still have questions. There's questions still in Romans 9. They're still coming. So there's, again, mercy and grace for that. We want to be patient with one another in that. But let's not forget what we're talking about. That the God who inspired this word is the God who came in flesh for the redemption of sinners. Not the redemption of the kind of good. Not the redemption of the potentially good. The redemption of those who are dead in sins. Amen. That's who came. He didn't send an angel. He himself came to save he came to be a propitiation for sin. God's wrath is upon us. He requires propitiation. He himself steps in as the propitiation. That propitiation requires blood. He himself pours out the blood for our sin, right? He's the blood sacrifice for us. And so if you've trusted in God for salvation, you need to know what kind of God you trusted in. Yeah, it's the God of Romans 9. He's holy, he's just, he even hates in some holy ways. He's also the God that took on flesh and came in love to save you. He's a loving God. He's a just God. He's a good God. He's a holy God. He's all of those things all at the same time. Romans 9 does not change or roll back anything else we read in Scripture. He is all of those things. Don't forget when we speak of this God that this is the one in verse 5. 
that he came in the flesh, Christ, and he's God over all. And we can't do a better job of being God over all than him. What we do in Romans 9 is we kind of subtly kind of try to insert our place over him and judge him and think maybe we'd do a better job. What Romans 9 is, is God being God. He is sovereign. He is independent of us. It's his prerogative to be God, not ours. And church, good news to you today. The God that we see in Scripture, including in Romans 9, is such a good God. He always keeps his word. His promises haven't failed. It's based on something that's hard for us to grasp, but it's based on something that we can trust and submit to. It's based on God himself. His purpose of election stands. We can go way high to the heights of eternity because he has this depth of eternity that's for us. We can trust him, church. And so as we consider this stuff, let's do that very thing, bowing before him, saying, you are God overall. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, these things are deep, and for many they are hard, for all of us really. But Lord, as, as Dylan closed with the statement that you can be trusted, Lord, that is where we have to land. You can be trusted. Your word tells us that the foundations of our salvation were being built before the foundations of this world were laid. That is a deep, deep foundation. Lord, I pray that we would be humble in our approach to texts like these, Lord, that we would not try to impose schemes of man, what makes sense to our flesh, what we think is fair or just, Lord, we do not know. God, you do. And again, you can be trusted. And I pray, Father, that what we would take away from this morning and what we've heard is, is gratitude. That you would be pleased to choose any of us to be your own is shocking because we all deserve your judgment. And God, rather than trying to figure out who we think could be the called and who aren't, God, help us to see your plan for us, the mission that you've given us to go and declare the gospel that those who have been called might come alive from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, Lord. You are saving so many and we want to partner with you, Lord. Help us like King David when confronted with his sin for numbering Israel. Help us to, in faith, just cast ourselves into your hands, not into the schemes of man. David knew that in your hands he'd be okay. And I pray that when we see our sin and we see the sin of this world, that, Father, we would pray that 
people would understand, that we would understand that it is only in your hands, Father, that we can escape what we truly deserve and that you are a good and gracious God. And because of that, you will deal with sin and that you are just and holy equally. And that if you weren't, Father, we'd all be in trouble. God, again, these things are so deep. We are challenged. I pray, God, that you would just show grace to this body, help us to not divide over this, Father, but rather that this truth would unite us. I pray for our group leaders this week and today and tonight, that you'd give us wisdom, that we'd show each other grace, that we would defer and yield, Lord, to what your word says. We're thankful for it. In Christ's name, amen.